Hi folks, I want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerbinsville Christian Church. And we are in the midst of our study of the Old Testament, our survey of the Old Testament. We're up to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And we're into lesson five today. And we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter four, verse one, through chapter six, verse 19. And today we're going to be focusing on uh, the efforts and even the opposition concerning the rebuilding of the walls. Now, if you remember, we were kind of already introduced to the fact that there is opposition to Nehemiah's efforts. In chapters 1 to 3, we were introduced to Sanballat the Horonite, or some would call him Sanballat the Samaritan, and Tobiah the Ammonite. And of course, the Ammonites, Ammon, was one of the descendants of Lot, who would ultimately later become an enemy to Israel. Now, we're going to focus on some of the things that they're going to do to try to stop the walls from being rebuilt. Now, you're probably wondering, why would they want to stop doing that? Why would they want to stop the rebuilding process? Well, as long as the city had no walls, it was vulnerable to the oppression of the peoples around them, especially the Samaritans, and to have the walls rebuilt in Jerusalem would give the Jews a fortified position from which to exist. So we're going to focus on the whole rebuilding effort today. Now, when we come to chapter 4, what we're going to see is, is of course, there's going to be some opposition that arises in, in different ways, and we're going to see Nehemiah's efforts against opposition. So we're going to look, first of all, at chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. So I want you to notice, when you start into chapter 24, that when Zambalad heard that the walls were being rebuilt, he became angry and mocked the Jews. So he became very vocal, basically saying they're feeble, they can't do this. He's mocking the Jews. He's venting because they're doing this. He questioned what the feeble Jews were doing before the army of Samaria. So his venting wasn't just to himself in his private chambers. He's doing it before the army of Samaria. He's venting, basically being a leader and, and saying they're nothing. He's basically humiliating the Jews and their efforts before the army of Samaria. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite, of course, he's involved with this as well. Tobiah the Ammonite also mocked the Jews, saying that a fox would knock their wall down. He's basically mocking what they would produce or what kind of wall that they would make and says basically a fox, a simple fox from the desert could knock down their wall. So the scripture then records Nehemiah's response. So obviously this has gotten back to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is, has heard that this is taking place. So here's how he responds. Nehemiah responds by asking the Lord to turn their enemies' reproach on their heads. So basically he's saying, God, you take what they're saying, you take the humiliation that they're heaping on us, and you return it back onto them. You return it back onto them. Let them be in reproach. And we're going to see that that happens later on. Let them be in reproach by our efforts and by our success in rebuilding the walls. So then the Lord asks 
excuse me, Nehemiah asks the Lord not to forgive their iniquity because they are provoking the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? Here, Nehemiah isn't saying, oh God, forgive them. He's saying, God, don't forgive them because they're provoking you. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute now, how is it that they're provoking. They're, they're heaping on the Jews. They're, they're, they're trying to stop the efforts of rebuilding the walls. Well, you're provoking the Lord, first of all, by attacking his people. Okay? And then number two, by getting them to stop doing what the Lord told them to do. That's all a slight and attack against the God of Israel. So Nehemiah is saying, look, Lord, don't forgive them because they're provoking you. So that's what we see happening there. Now, it moves on a little bit further into chapter 4, and, and you see that there's success. They're gradually taking care of the walls. So when the opposition heard that the gaps in the walls were being filled, they became angry. So at first they're venting, but then as it as time moves on, they're realizing, oh no, they're doing this. They're accomplishing what they're wanting to do. So they become angry. And so they conspired to, create, to attack Jerusalem and create confusion. So basically, they developed this plot that they, what they would do is, is they would take their army, attack Jerusalem, and in the attack, people are going to be scattered, people are going to be... Uh, they don't know what to do. There's going to be confusion and the process of building the walls going to stop. So this is what they were planning on doing. Well, here's the thing, though. Somebody was obviously telling Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard about this plot. So again, he responds with prayer. So Nehemiah responded with prayer to God and setting up a night and day watch. So he does two things. Number one, he's like, God, you have to protect us. But see, he didn't just stop with that. He did what he could do in his own efforts while praying and said, we need to set up a guard who will keep an eye out on whatever is going on outside of the walls day and night. So they were looking for the attack. So one of the things the scripture then tells us is that the workers became physically exhausted from the work and fearful of a secret attack. So as they're doing the work, they got two things going on here. They've got this whole aspect that this is strenuous work and they're working hard to get it done. And especially now the pressure is there to get it done because they hear this attack's coming. So they're physically exhausted. That's the report that's brought to Nehemiah. The other thing is that they're fearful of an attack because they're not going to be ready. They've been busy working on the wall. They're physically exhausted. Is it possible that we're going to be able to handle an attack? So this is the report that came to Nehemiah. So here's what Nehemiah did. Okay, he's, he's brilliant. He, he positioned men behind the lower parts of the walls with spears and bows. So what he does is, is he basically positions men to take up guard and to be ready behind the walls. Now in doing that, look, they're basically resting then, but they're on guard and the workers can continue working. 
He also positioned people according to their families with weapons. He's very smart. He's not spreading everybody out to work on all different parts. He's positioning people within their family groups so that if they get attacked, they're going to be more inclined to fight because they're going to be protecting their family groups. So he positioned the people and he gave them weapons. Nehemiah spoke to the people and encouraged, encouraged them to trust the Lord and fight for their families. So basically, trust in the Lord, fight for your families. That's his whole point here. He's encouraging them to do the right thing. Now, the people were also told, stay in Jerusalem. Don't go out, because there would be freedom of movement because there's no gates, there's no walls that are, the walls are not in good, so people could come and go. But basically, he's telling them to stay in Jerusalem as they worked and remain on guard continually. Why? They wanted to make sure they had the people to repel an attack if it is possible. Not have people go out and tend their properties during this time. So, when we get to chapter 5 now, we're going to see a discussion now of Nehemiah as governor. Some of the issues that he had to deal with, as well as the whole issue of uh, what he basically lived on. So the first thing I want you to see is this. There was a great outcry from the people against certain of their Jewish brethren. So while this project is going on, there's some deep, pent-up feelings that are happening among the people, and it comes to the forefront, okay? It's coming out, so they cry out to the governor, you got to do something about this. And, and what they're talking about is, is that during the famine, all right, so that's the period when there was not food coming in, when there's severe depression, during the famine, they mortgaged their lands and vineyards and homes in order to buy grain. So what they ended up doing is, is so during the famine, of course, the price of fruit, food goes up. They've got to buy food. They don't have the money. There's no produce from the land for them to get money. So what, by selling it, what do they do? They end up mortgaging all of their properties, lands, vineyards, homes, to the people who have the finances, to their Jewish brethren who have the finances, in order to buy grain. Others basically communicate. Others had to borrow money in order to pay the king's tax on their lands and vineyards. Now here's the thing. They're part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And even then, you still had to pay taxes. And here we see they had to pay a property tax. Because they owned vineyards and lands and homes, there was a tax that had to be collected from them to be given to the king, to the Persian king. And so some of them, they weren't able to pay that tax because, of course, it's the famine. So what do they do? They borrow money in order to pay the king's tax. So... In order to pay their debts, here's the third problem now, in order to pay their, repay their debts, they had to sell their children into slavery. 
So when you, you borrow something, at some point it's going to come due or you have to make payments. Well, see, now they're in a desperate situation where they can't make the repayment, so what do they do? They sell their children into slavery to their own Jewish brethren. And so this is the outcry of the people. Now this, I'm going to be honest with you, more than the opposition that's taking place outside with Zambalat, the Horonite, and with Tobiah, the Ammonite, this is a greater problem for Nehemiah because you're, you're only as strong as where your people are at. And this is a major division among the people. So... It points out in the text there was no way for the people to redeem their children since they no longer had their lands. Do you see the vicious cycle they're in? They borrow money they, by, by mortgaging their properties or to pay the tax. They can't pay anymore because they have no means of paying, so they sell their kids, and they can't even buy their kids back because they really don't have any lands anymore because they had to mortgage them in order to get food or to pay the tax. So here's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah sees everything that's going on. He's a pretty wise guy. And here's what I want you to notice. Nehemiah rebuked the nobles and rulers for charging usury from the brethren. You're saying usury, George. What is that? Interest. He's rebuking the rulers and the nobles, because they're the ones who had the money, they're the ones who were providing the funds when the others were mortgaging their lands. He's the, they're the ones who were basically buying these children from them, placing them into slavery. And so Nehemiah rebuked the nobles and the rulers for charging usury. He called the accused to walk in the fear of the Lord and stop charging usury stop charging interest he's saying God, walk with God walk in fear of him don't you realize what you're doing stop charging interest they were here's what he's doing he's telling them they were to restore the lands and the vineyards as well as a portion of the money to the people basically he wants them to return their dishonest gain from the people. Okay, He's not saying it was wrong for them to lend money. He was saying it's wrong for you to charge interest and to place these people in such a situation that they would never be able to get their land back. And he's saying, you give them back their land, you give them back their vineyards, and you give them back a portion of the money. The accused stated that they would restore the land and the money as they swore oaths to do that. So here's the thing. I notice it's very interesting. You see this happening a couple of times here in Nehemiah. We maybe have seen it also as well as in Ezra. He's not just going by them saying, okay, we'll do that. We'll give back to them the property, their kids. We'll give back their, their money. You've got my word. No, no. They had to swear an oath before the priests, before God. That's what was binding. So they enter into an agreement to do what they say they're supposed to do. That's what's happening here. Pretty, pretty significant thing that Nehemiah is having them do. Now, 
when you get to the last part now of Nehemiah 5, what you're going to see now is, is it talks about the whole issue of Nehemiah's portion and how he sustained himself as a governor. So the first thing the text is going to tell you is this, is that Nehemiah and his brother did not eat the governor's provision during his 12-year tenure. So this is the first time that we see in the text that Nehemiah is actually serving as governor here for 12 years. And during that entire period of time, he didn't take the governor's provision. Now, what's a governor's provision? Well, that would be the allotment that the people would be required to provide for the support of the governor. Goes back all the way back to the whole issue of kings. There was a portion that was supposed to be from the 12 tribes for the sustaining of the king. We saw that with King Solomon way back when we were looking at 1 Kings. So Nehemiah, it's a very common thing in the ancient world, the governor would have a provision that he would require from the people. But he and his brother did not eat that portion. Because he feared the Lord, Nehemiah did not burden the people as past governors had done. Look, the people are already in distress. Remember, we've already talked about now at the beginning of this chapter that they're having a hard time paying back their debts. They've had to sell their kids into slavery. They're having a hard time paying the taxes. Nehemiah doesn't want to add to their burden by taking care of him. But that's what the past governors did, the text tells you. So Nehemiah and his servants also labored on the wall and he daily hosted 150 Jews at his table. So the text goes on and tells you that Nehemiah just didn't take the provision, but he was out there working himself to make sure the wall was happening. And then every evening he had 150 people eating at his table. This was coming out of his own pocket. He was providing to bring a meal to 150 people at his table. He hosted them, as well as, the scripture will tell you, outsiders, foreigners. Because the bondage on the people was great, again, Nehemiah did not demand the provision. Twice this is mentioned now. And it has to do with the state in which the people were in. And he did not impose himself on the people. Now, I think it's interesting. If you go over to the New Testament, you see the same kind of example from the Apostle Paul. That's why he was a tent maker. He said that as an apostle, it was a, there was a certain privilege in being an apostle that the churches were supposed to fulfill and providing for him. But he did not take that. He labored himself so that he would not be a strain on the churches. So you see the same kind of thing happening here with Nehemiah. Now, the opposition heard the walls were finished, though the gates were not hung. So we're into chapter 6 now. We're going to see some more opposition happening, some more things that are happening here. So they hear that the walls are complete at this point. But the gates aren't hung. Now, what are the gates? They would be the main entryways into the city. And so basically, you've got these walls, but you've got these holes now because they haven't hung the gates yet. 
So they sent word to Nehemiah to meet with them in the villages on the plain of Ono. So they want to have a meeting, supposedly have a meeting, on the plains out somewhere in Israel, on the plains of Ono, and basically have a meeting. Well, it isn't just that they were wanting to have a meeting. They were wanting to have an opportunity to kill Nehemiah now. Before the gates are hung, we're going to eliminate him. We'll have a meeting and we'll assassinate him. So Nehemiah replied that he was busy doing a great work and cannot stop for the meeting. Pretty wise. He says, look, I understand you want to meet. Yeah, that's a good idea, but I can't do that right now. Got too much going on, too busy. We're going to have to reschedule that. So Zanballat then sent word that, he, that the rumor is that Nehemiah is setting himself up as king. So here's the second strategy. The plot doesn't work to assassinate him, so now we're going to slander him again and start spreading the rumor that Nehemiah is trying to set himself up as king. He also stated that it is rumor that they will rebel against the king, the Persian king. So Nehemiah is going to set himself up as king in his own little vassal state of Jerusalem. And then he's going to rebel against the Persian king. This is the rumor. Well, Nehemiah replies to that crazy rumor as well. He replied that the rumors were not true as he recognized their plot against him. So he's realizing what's going on here and he says, look, the rumors aren't even true. And so the next thing we see here, a third thing happening is, is Nehemiah visited the house of a man who was a secret informer. What do you mean a secret informer, George? Well, he's visiting a prominent Jew who actually is an informer to Samballot, who has some kind of whatever connection to the Samaritans. This man proposed that Nehemiah meet in the temple since there was a plot to kill him. He's, if you read the text, he's telling, them to, telling Nehemiah to go have a meeting because there's a plot to kill him that day. And the best place to have the meeting is in this holy sanctuary, in the temple. Which, by the way, if you remember, we've talked about this, the way the temple grounds were set up. There was the court of the Gentiles, that's as far as a Gentile could go. There was the court of the women, that's as far as the women could go, the court of the men. Then there was the court of the priests, and then there was the most holy place where the showbread was, and even the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there were certain places that you couldn't go beyond. The farthest that Nehemiah could go in the temple himself was the court of men. To go beyond that would be to desecrate the temple. But see, this guy is saying we need to have a secret meeting because they're out to kill you. And here's what we need to do. We need to meet in the most holy place. That's the safest place for you to go. Well, Nehemiah recognized that this would lead to defiling the temple and discrediting him. What do you mean discrediting him? Well, if he defiled the temple, chances are Nehemiah would have been stoned. His leadership would have been discredited. He would have been discredited in all of his efforts. And Nehemiah recognizes that this is going on. 
So Nehemiah prayed against Sambalat and Tobiah as well as the prophets who tried to scare him. So now we're seeing the text is telling us it's not just secret informers, people who are aligned with Sambalat and Tobiah, but there's also these prophets of the Lord who are speaking against Nehemiah's efforts here. So Nehemiah is praying against them all because they're trying to scare him to stop the work. Well, then you come to Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 through 19, and what we see here is the completion of the walls. And this is what is amazing, folks. First thing you're going to notice is, is that the walls of Jerusalem were completed in 52 days. The walls of Jerusalem, 52 days. It only took them 52 days, even with all this opposition, even with this ruckus concerning the issue of interest and usury and, and their kids being sold into slavery, it only took them 52 days to complete the walls of Jerusalem. When their enemies heard of the wall's completion, they were disheartened. What do, you, what do you mean disheartened, George? Well, remember back when they made, they mocked the Jews saying, would they be able to do that or that a fox would knock the walls down? Nehemiah prayed, Lord, bring the reproach back on their heads. It's happening now, folks. It's happening in that the enemies are disheartened when they hear that the walls are complete. And this was due to the fact that they recognized the rebuilding was done by God. So the enemies realized this only happened because God did it for them. God is the reason why the walls are completed. And so they were disheartened. And, but then the text finishes out in chapter 6 telling us that some of the nobles were aligned with Tobiah the Ammonite. So some of the nobles, the people that are, quote, supposed to be doing right by the Jewish people, are actually aligned with their enemies, Tobiah the Ammonite. Why is that? Well, this is because of his familial connection to two of Jerusalem's families. So there are two prominent families in Jerusalem, and Tobiah the Ammonite has a connection through family to these, through marriage actually, to these two families. And you see the text describing to you exactly what's going on there. And what these folks did was, is they reported good reports of Tobiah to Nehemiah as they spied for him. So what did they do? So they would show up and say, you know, that Tobiah guy, he's really a good guy. But they would also go back and say, well, this is what's happening in Nehemiah's court. This is what he's talking about. They would spy out. And this was happening as Tobiah was sending threatening letters to Nehemiah, to him. So even as they're talking him up and spying for him, Tobiah is actually showing who he really is by sending threatening letters. Now, next week... We've seen the completion of the walls. You say, oh man, that should end the book. Well, actually, we're not done yet with Nehemiah. Next week, we're going to get into chapter 7, and we're going to work our way through the passage, chapter 7 through chapter 10, and we're going to see the discussion of the city and the people who were in the city 
And again, we're going to be reintroduced to Ezra. Remember Ezra from the book of Ezra? We're going to see his ministry now and what takes place because of that ministry. And that's what we're going to look at next week.